Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Farsta. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, Solid Con 2015 Flashback, Part 2. We talk about your excellent trip to the Solid Conference. Hi, I'm Mouse McCoy. I'm the CEO and creative director of Bandito Brothers. And Bandito Brothers is a, is a movie studio and TV and media studio, but we're also makers as well. When you, when you think about like making films or making media, there's things in it. So you make things for your product. And, and so we're always thinking about making things and really started, started to move forward and look at how is, is you know, technology and advanced manufacturing and everything's going to impact the, you know, the media business, the entertainment business overall. So that became a thought for us. And, and, and we'd come off a few projects that were fairly significant that, that, that pointed our, us in this direction here. Um, we did a project called Hot Wheels for Real, where we basically took Hot Wheels, all the all the fantasy that would be inside of a kid's mind, and we brought it to life on a full scale. So cool. it turned out to be a pretty big, rapid prototyping uh, project of going sort of from bits to atoms. You know, we would start with these crazy digital renderings of of kid fantasy, and then we went and built them for real. Wow. So we built, for instance, and we went and set three world records in 18 months. So that was, like I said, a pretty radical rapid prototyping mission. You know, we had to build the cars, build the ramps, build the stunts, build everything, you know, from the ground up. And, uh, you know, we, we, for instance, did the world's longest jump with a car. But we started out, we built a 150-foot door live at the Indy 500 with a life-size Hot Wheels track. And then we jumped a car, a truck, 335 feet, the length of a football field. That's incredible. Right. And so it was just massive, like, you know, a kid used to put the orange track on his door and, yeah. and then use a shoebox and build a jump. Well, we built it for real. And then you know, we went on and actually built the world's biggest loop as well. That was at, at the X Games live. You know, and wow. after all of this, it was really, we realized, you know, hey, we were really successful, but our margins were really thin. It was still super dangerous. Most of it all was 20th century technology and wizardry and human factors. Did you, you know, still have somebody driving the oh car? Oh, yeah, there were, there were humans in there. Oh, wow. And so, you know, we had good math, but we didn't have big analysis software. We didn't have all the tools that are now emerging. Yeah. And so as we started thinking, wow, what if we could really harness technology and get a lot better at our craft of, of bringing things to life? And that introduced us to Autodesk. And so now what we're doing here is we're starting a research project on how is... Um, you know, digital design, advanced manufacturing, and of things coming together to really shape mobility. Wow. And so right now, this is a research project that we're launching with Autodesk. Um, and, and we're starting with a whole lot of experience from the 20th century. So this pile of welded shaped chromoly tubing is actually 30, 40 years of experience of, of true wizards and master builders. Okay. You know, Baja 1000 wins, world record stunts, movie cars, everything, these guys have shaped it. So we said, oh, that's a fantastic starting point. And what we're doing is we're reality capturing, we're ripping all of that experience. So the geometry, the shape, all of it. And then we're going into Auto, the new Autodesk, Autodesk Dreamcatcher. Do you okay. know about this? Yeah. So then we're gonna take that and be the starting point. So starting with atoms and then going to bits and then letting Dreamcatcher start to shape really the vision of, of a car for the future. Wow. And then at the same time, we're, we have some fantastic artist rendering. So we're going to use a human artist to shape the exterior structure and then let it generate and do a generative design underneath the artist structure. So it'll be a really interesting way of artist and engineer sort of working together. And 
And what we feel like right now is, I mean, this technology is so groundbreaking. Right. It's, it's as if we have a thousand engineers working for us. And there's going to be a handful of, of team of researchers we think are going to produce a car that completely blows everybody's mind. And, and our goal right now is to do this as an example of rapid prototyping. So start today and then within six months drive this car to Autodesk University. Wow. So and then have it be truly cutting edge. Wow. So essentially the, the process is you started with um, the, this model, uh, which is you took from existing knowledge. You're putting it in this virtual world where you're, you're basically taking in as much knowledge as possible and just kind of testing it out in that virtual world. Um, and then how, how significant are the tests that you can do in Autodesk Dreamcatcher to actually the, know how far off you are from reality? Well, that's, that's what we're going to learn. Okay. You know, with Dreamcatcher, even the flow analysis um, software, starting to integrate material properties into there, mm -hmm. we're, and then when we go export, and then once again, we're going to end up with a shape that, if you've seen the chair, okay. you know the chair? Mm -mm. This, is, this will really put in perspective. So this was an early Dreamcatcher project. Okay. And that chair on the left was 10 pounds, and that was the, the geometry and the forces it had to hold, you know, a couple hundred pound human being, and that was the starting point. And then they said, okay, what, what's the best possible example of this? The chair on the right weighs two pounds. Oh. So it went from 10 pounds to two pounds, and it's some woven structure that no, I don't think a human would even start with right. to think about. So imagine this being the equivalent of that chair yeah. for a car chassis, so maybe it, it might be radically strong, ultra lightweight, and we're most likely going to have a form that replaces that that is extremely complex to manufacture. So then we're going to challenge the, um, sort of the top minds in the advanced manufacturing space to produce that form. How, how it's going to be laid up is really interesting. Yeah, and definitely. that's part of the research project is how would you go produce that form. Yeah. And then we're going to bolt it all together. Hopefully, the, you know, the parts might come from various sources, um, and we want to build it at Tech Shop. Wow. Because Tech Shop already is a distributed microfactory yeah. and a network of them. So imagine you could have parts, and, and, and this is starting to really shape a supply chain ideology. Mm -hmm. Parts being shown up by, say, UPS, the Tech Shop, and guys bolt the car together, and if they need little things or interior pieces, all the, all the tools are there. So we can finish the car, and then we want to drive it out of Tech Shop. Wow, so do you even have, uh, can you even fathom what this thing might look like? Uh, or um, well, is it just... Uh... I know what the exterior is going to look like is we're not, it's, um, so hold on one second here. Sure. So it's gonna be sort of this insane fantasy roadster. Nice. The car every, everybody wants right now, but nobody makes. Right. Sort of that, we're, we're starting with the essence of, we're not trying to be a hyper car, yeah. go 100 million miles an hour, all that. We want a cool car. We want that sort of James Dean 550 Porsche Spider from the 60s, yeah. you know, an old, and that's the vibe. We want to make something cool. Because a, a lot of this is, is so much about trying to bring individuality and cool back to the everyman. Because yeah. Mass Auto doesn't care about the everyman anymore. Uh, it'll make some cool stuff for billionaires, but but why can't I have the car of my dreams for a really efficient price? And yeah. you know, why can't it be individual expression? And so that's that's really underlying is is bringing all that the, all those tools to the everyman. So are you thinking with this technology and the way Internet of Things is going anyway? that we could get in the near future to a point where you have a custom car. Everyone has a custom car, Absolutely. and it's the same price as your normal car. That Absolutely, because that's an important point. When we're talking about compiling matter yeah. with robots, you know, ro and it doesn't care what the form is. Right. So why shouldn't it be a great form? 
You know, right now, really, if you think about it, a Hyundai should cost the same as a Ferrari. The material costs are basically the same. Yeah. It's, it's metal, rubber, leather, yeah. some carbon fiber. So why, why can't we have great design for everyone? It right. doesn't make sense if you think about it, in the age of advanced manufacturing. Yeah. And that's, that's a big goal of ours. So you see a lot of 3D printing coming together with this? Yeah, I, I, 3D printing definitely, but there's, there's a lots of versions of additive manufacturing right now. Right. So is, is it some new casting technologies? Is it other versions of additive materials coming together? We're going to explore all those possibilities. But I think just saying a 3D printed car is kind of naive, knowing that there's an aggregate set of technologies that we'll, we'll go into here. And also we're really starting to look at um, you know, networked matter. Is this thing being fully woven with sensors all the way through? So that it can start to, to talk to its garage, it can talk to its owner. So. As we go to Autodesk University, we're going to build a design lab garage of the future. That's, that, that's, that's, th this is the starting point. Like, okay, we have this little shop, we're going to expand it, but imagine if your car could talk to your garage. And it came home and the front suspension arm said, hey, I hit a pothole today, I'm stressed, I need to be replaced, I'm broken. So that, that, that connectivity is, is going to be interesting to research as well. Nice. So how else do you see the car fitting into the general ecosystem of your life as, as it goes? Do you have any big dreams for that? I think to just be able to drive something that's individual in my own right now is, God, it's a really special, special yeah. concept. You're so, rolling around in your own art piece. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So when you put it into Dreamcatcher, do you also have to put in the specs of the driver to make sure that it is custom to that, how you sit and how much yeah, you that, weigh? And that, that's correct, and that's why we started with this geometry. So the voids are there, then <laughs> the geometry we know works really well. Yeah. And, and we understand like the weight of this, these material properties, and then the load data for all the suspension points and your pick points and where the motor and drive, driver are going to sit, that's all factored in. And that's why we started with something we know works. Yeah. Um, and then what's going to be really cool is how close, when we start to test this and output the file, how close were we? We're going to really have a lot of data. So, um, really, I think everybody started this. To say you have it figured out right now is, is a tall order, and I think all of this craziness needs to be researched. So that's why we said, hey, we, we know what all the tools possibly can do, but until we bring it all together and make something. Yeah. So this will be the world's first generative design car. That's really cool. Yeah. So where can uh, anybody go to find out more and follow your progress? Uh, so. Everybody will be able to tune into Autodesk University. Okay. You know, we're starting right now, we're sort of declaring the future, and we'll see what we come up with. I think what's interesting about that is just the personalization of, of the devices. You know, we've talked a lot about IoT, but there's a potential for uh, sort of the rapid bespoke manufacturing to have a, a really big impact. Yeah. On this stuff as well. That's kind of what really got me excited about my conversation with Mouse was that it's it it gets us closer to this dream of having uh, a Ford like price structure for cars, but every car is individual, right? So you know, every car being individual to the owner isn't necessarily a new concept because when automobiles were first invented, everyone had you if you were rich enough, you would have your own custom car. Every car was custom. Ford came in and revolutionized it by creating uh, the assembly line and uh, the prices went down. But with 
3D printing and Dreamcatcher and Autodesk and kind of mapping out you as a person, maybe making a mood board of the things you like. Uh, and then you could have a 3D printed, assembled, sensor-laden car created for you for the same price as the Nissan Altima you're driving now. Uh, and everything's unique and cool and different. Uh, I, I that That got me really excited because I thought, you know, that cars now have become so boring. Yeah, I'm that's really true. excited to have my own car that's made for me. Yeah. Um, it and, would totally redefine hot rodding too. Oh yeah. It'd be pretty cool. I mean, then we'd go back to the era of cruising up and down the strip and showing off your yeah. ride. <laughs> I can imagine a scenario too, where you're licensing properties. Like, uh, you might have, uh, you might want something that looks like it came out of the movie cars yeah. or something. Just like that office building that was just built in uh, China that looks like Star Star Trek Enterprise. There you go. Exactly. You could have your own enterprise car. Absolutely. <laughs> Don't try to drive it over 25 miles an hour, but. Aww. But it looks cool. <laughs> but yeah. And it fits your body, which I think is actually good because I got to say, uh, one of the things that I look for when I shop for a car is, is the seat comfortable as the yeah. driver. And sometimes I'm too tall and sometimes I'm too short. And so it's just, even with the adjusting of the seat, if, yeah. if this thing's fit like a glove, cause it knew you. No, I have, pretty cool. I have a lot of problems with that at six, five. Yeah. I really, I bet. yeah, we, we have to like rule out cars. It's like, oh, this car is perfect. Except I can't fit. Except my, my hair is rubbing up against the ceiling and creating static electricity, <laughs> which sounds dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there was, uh, some other interesting robotics there. Uh, there was uh, a company called Fetch Robotics and, uh, the way they attract you to their booth is they actually had the Fetch robot and he had his little face and he had his little arms and it reminded me a bit of, uh, the GE robot uh -huh. that we, we also spoke about a couple episodes, episodes ago. And, uh, this is a two-parter. So they're two robots that actually work together for inventory management. And uh, one of my main questions was, so Amazon's already kind of using robots, um, but their biggest change to the market is that these robots can work with people. They can essentially become an additional part of your workforce. Oh, cool. Uh, so they're like, I guess part of the word fetch is human's best friend sort of thing. A little bit. And uh, that they fetch the product. Cool. And, Let's yeah. hear more. My name is Ian Manforth, and I'm a lead robotics engineer for Fetch Robotics. Uh, we make robots for the logistics industry. Very cool. So you have Fetch, um, yes. and what's the other one called? Freight. Freight. And how do these two work together? Fetch and Freight work as a pair within fulfillment warehouses. Uh, Fetch would be the robot that actually takes items off of shelves or puts items back on shelves. Freight is the long-distance travel robot, the companion robot to Fetch, or even a companion robot to humans. So anything that is picked and needs to travel a long distance in a warehouse, you would put it into a freight, and it would take it to shipping or wherever it needs to go. Very cool. And how is this different from what Amazon's doing with their uh, warehouse fulfillment? 
Um, so it's actually fairly significantly different. One, because they have humans doing the actual picking. Um, and two, their systems require actually rebuilding a warehouse before it can be implemented. Our systems are designed to go into existing warehouses and work beside humans. So they're really co-robots um, that can work in existing spaces. That's impressive. So what kind of... Um sensor technology does it have, or how does it actually assess the world around it? Sure, sure. So both Fetch and Freight use a scanning laser uh, rangefinder in the base. It has about a 210 degree field of view. Um, for the Fetch, we also have a 3D camera in the head, um, and that gives us both depth perception and allows us to find objects that we want to pick up. So let's say it's in a factory um, selling random widgets, and how, how does it know what it needs when it needs it? So that's defined entirely by the customer. What okay. do they want the robot to pick up? Where is that thing in the warehouse? They give us that information, and we basically tell the robot, go to this location and pick up what you find there and put it into the freight if it needs to go somewhere else. Okay, so, and then it uses the camera to kind of confirm that that's what it's looking for. So exactly. it's looking for a box of Q-tips, it knows this is what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, and um, it also uses the camera to do obstacle detection. Um, because the, these are designed to work in dynamic environments, around people, they're changing all the time. No warehouse is static, so even if we have a good idea of what the base layout of the warehouse is, we need to be constantly evaluating our environment so we don't run into things and we can be safe around people. So how um, automated is it? Does, does someone still have to train it or teach it or control it in any way, or can you just kind of give it some programming and then let it go do its thing? Um, it really depends on the setup of the given warehouse. Okay. If you have a fairly well-structured environment where you know um, where the shelves are, then it's very uh, well set up to do in a completely automated fashion. Go to this shelf, go to this area on the shelf, and get me one of these items. Um, and I want to emphasize that's, that's still being worked on right now. Right. That has not yet been deployed, but that's the um, ideal we're going for. Um, for, the, for the freight robots, they're incredibly uh, automated, and they um, can actually work alongside humans in what we call the follow-pick mode. So they can actually follow humans around through the warehouse. So it's a combination of human intelligence and robot autonomy. Okay. So uh, does it... Is, is it like one robot per person? Would it know which human it's in? How, how does it do that? <laughs> sure. So it actually is following the legs of the human in front of it. Um, so if you really tried hard, you could probably confuse it with another human. Um, <laughs> but, you know, most people don't do that. So And we can actually um, sort of daisy chain the robot so you can have multiple robots following you. Or once you've filled up one robot and told it to go to shipping, you can summon a new robot and have it start following you through the warehouse. Nice. So it basically knows by your gait and how you walk and uh, it yeah, knows who you are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So, have you been um, putting it into any sort of uh, real life environments yet? Really testing it out? How, how's that been going? We're testing it both in our own um, simulated warehouse environment and with some trial customers. We haven't made any announcements about that, but um, some definitely recognizable names and very cool. Places. And have you experienced any particular challenges that are exciting or um, that you weren't expecting as, as it starts going out into the real world? Well, uh, robots in a dynamic environment is incredibly challenging. It's one of the hardest problems there is. Um, humans think navigating through cluttered spaces is easy because we're so good at it. Um, but for a robot that has to learn everything um, by a human telling it for the first time and then trying to deal with dynamic changes, uh, 
it's it's incredibly hard. But we also have a fantastic team, and we're built on top of the open source, uh, the, the uh, on top of ROS, the robot operating system. So there's a lot of history there, and a lot of challenges that have already been solved, and we're improving on them. Um, there's still a lot of challenges to be solved, but you know we've we've come a long way. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say about uh, what your plans are for Fetch? The well, they're available for purchase today. If okay. you uh, and we're you know shipping, we've already shipped out our first robots. Uh, we have both the industry packages as well as uh, academic packages. So researchers can actually get an open source discount on the robots if they're if they want to order one for their labs. Nice. So yeah. how do you see it working in a lab? Is it is it capable of picking up glass and, and without breaking it? And, and well, there are a lot of researchers who are interested in exactly that problem okay. and we provide the platform and we provide the base software and then they would add the extra capabilities on top the of that. The grippers and yeah. whatever. Exactly. So any lab that might have previously purchased say a PR2 from Willow Garage and finds that that's a little bit aging and yeah. not doing exactly what it should do well now we have a, a good successor to that in a mobile manipulation platform in Fetch. Very cool. So uh, if anyone wants to find out more information where would they go? Fetchrobotics.com. Okay. Also we're hiring so Fetch robotics.com slash careers. Check us out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. So this is cool. This would be more interesting to, for folks interested in, in more of the industrial side of the internet of things. And it sounds like the show is mostly consumer. Were there a lot of uh, industrial internet of things uh, devices there? or I would say there weren't too many. Uh, there were some interesting uh, analytics that could be used on the industrial side, right? So um, obviously, the Autodesk, and there were a couple other companies that focused on um, analytical processing uh, that could be used on an industrial level. But I would say most of the draw there was consumer. This year at Solid, it really felt that even the industrial side of things was much more about integrating seamlessly. Like that really felt like the theme. You know, we've been to other conferences where it's more about here's this disruptive technology or here's this really cool thing that you've never seen before. But both with the stack lighting and fetch and uh, kind of a lot of the other products there, it was much more of how do we get us to IoT faster? How do we integrate this into our lives sooner um, rather than having to rebuild things, rather than having to create entire new networks and hubs and everything? Like, what can we do now to get us more comfortable with IoT sooner. Gotcha. So disruptive has a nice side, which is that it's new, it's interesting, but it also implies that the products could be a pain in the butt. And so they're really, it sounds like they're really emphasizing, look, we can integrate this into the way that you live. We can make that better. We can make your current processes uh, improve those. Yeah. It really felt that, uh, you know, at first, IoT was very exciting, and it exploded, and we were like going up the curve, and so it was all about new, exciting things. Um, but now people are starting to realize that you can't just completely renovate your entire home with IoT stuff right now. Right. It's, it's just not going to work. And uh, there are factories and industrial that want to spend money on becoming you know, bringing us into the next generation of products but, and manufacturing and everything, but they can't. Uh, because it's insanely expensive. But here, just bring in a fetch robot and you can start seeing how things go. And uh, it works well with humans. You know, I love the fact that it, it can identify someone's gait from across the room. I mean, he was saying, what, a 210-foot radius? It, wow. yeah, it scans cool. for you. Um, so it almost becomes 
getting people more comfortable with robots and getting people more comfortable with IoT. So it slowly infiltrates. Fetch and freight are, they're super cute too. They are. I, 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 I've noticed that both with uh, f- Fetch and Freight and with GE, and this seems to be a common thing with the new robotics, is that it has to have some sort of a uh, cute factor. Yeah, they almost look sort of Pixar-inspired. Yeah, otherwise we all start going to Terminator and Skynet. But, <laughs> right. but if it's cute, it won't try to kill right. me, right? <laughs> yeah, speaking of analytics, uh, another company I came across that was there uh, was a company called Barrage, and they were uh, they partnered with another company called Quiet Time. And Quiet Time is the actual implementation of of an IoT device. Uh, basically, Quiet Time focuses on quiet time haha, um, in hospitals. Uh, mostly, they've noticed that people are not healing as uh, quickly in hospitals as they should be, and it's actually a place that um, hasn't really been encouraging healing because of noise. And so their entire focus is on uh, sensor technology to figure out what noise is and then associate them with uh, wellness and the, the patient's sleep patterns and, and the general know-how of everything. Uh, they do the sensor technology. Barrage does the analytics. Hi, I'm Emily Harris, and I'm the director of sales for Quiet Time. I'm Jordan Barrett, and I work with Barrage. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about how you guys work together and what Quiet Time does? Yeah, so absolutely, Quiet Time deploys sensors to different verticals. Specifically, we're talking with Barrage about hospitals, so healthcare. We monitor noise, temperature, humidity, and light levels, and we really focus on the noise and how it disturbs and impacts patients. So Barrage helps us analyze that and gives us a really clear picture of what's causing the noise and where it's coming from. So how exactly does Barrage um, pick out which data is is important and recognize patterns? Sure. One of our secret sauces, I guess, is our pattern detection language and engine. And we actually have a team that has decades of language experience in designing and developing languages and compilers. Um, So what this all really means is that you can very quickly talk about a pattern in a way you might describe it as you see it on a screen if it's a graph. Something increases very quickly and then repeats for maybe a while, maybe I don't know exactly how long, and then goes away again. And maybe there's overlapping patterns between sensors. And what it also means is we can run that really, really quickly so that in real time, as that pattern's happening, we can immediately send alerts to the quiet time system so quiet time can alert the nurses to try and do some pre- uh, prevention or, or mitigation. Sure. So now with quiet time and brush with the data analysis, do you see the data collected from the quiet time product connecting into other networks of data in that same sphere and helping each other out? I mean, if, if you think about Future it, speculation? <laughs> I say, sure, why not? I think that any time you're collecting data, it can reach, you know, everywhere. So I definitely say, yes, it's possible how it will actually turn out. Time will tell. <laughs> I also think one of the things that's interesting about what we're doing with, um, with Quiet Time is that we're also storing all the data because you might not actually know what you're looking for 
And so later on, you might go back and do a search and try and fit new patterns on that data. And maybe you do want to combine other sources of data or you want to um, you know, just explore some situation you didn't think um, was useful or interesting before. So uh, in the ecosystem, Barrage is the one that identifies what might be a pattern of concern um, and sends that information back to Quiet Time. Is that how it works? Correct. And we work very closely with Quiet Time so they can log in to Barrage and adjust the patterns as they need and even adjust on a per hospital basis. Um, and then those patterns become instantly live. So as the state is coming in, alerts that are based on those patterns maybe tailored to that hospital will end up feeding into that hospital's system um, or even to cell phones for cell phone alerts or however can best help the nurses. So a bulk of, uh, right now all the processing is done in the cloud, but you were saying that it could also send that those learnings to the device itself? Yes, potentially. That's a, a area of exploration for us, and we think it's a very exciting one because there's a lot of low-power devices, things that you might wear on your wrists, for instance, um, remote locations where you might have these. And so the important part is that you can use the cloud to have all this data and historical data and figure out what the important patterns are. But if you want to actually alert on those patterns in those low energy situations or the remote situations, you can then take that pattern you developed and push it down onto the device so it runs natively right on that hardware. Very cool. So have you guys found any interesting surprises as you've rolled this out and uh, collected data and experience? So I think it's more that it validates already kind of the studies that are out there for us specifically in healthcare. Um, we already knew kind of what the problem was going in, but now we have the proof that Yes, it, it is, you know, staff conversations that typically have the most impact on patients, the highest level of disturbances, and the fact that we can actually take what we're learning and validating and actually implement real-time solutions with the nursing staff to actually decrease noise instead of just covering it up with white noise. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of difference, especially in the hospital setting. So you're collecting all these different disturbances, and then you could, in theory, connect it to their health records and that, that sort of health data and see what raises their blood pressure. And Exactly. And we've actually even talked to hospitalists about, you know, in the morning when the doctor comes in to do their rounds, like, they can actually look at the data and say, oh, did my patient sleep last night? How, you know, are they delirious this morning because they're exhausted? And, oh, obviously, yes, I, I see. And they're even speculating that they might send a patient home earlier because you can rest better at home. Like, if you walk in and see somebody like, oh, they just look awful, but yeah, they have to stay. You might not have the entire picture, but looking at the sound data, you actually get to see their sleep cycles as well and how interrupted or uninterrupted they were. That's very cool. Awesome. Uh, do you have anything else about how Barrage improves the situation or data collection or... I think a lot we're just waiting to see. Uh, some of the exciting stuff can even come when you start uh, mixing different types of sensors. So we're really excited to see uh, Quiet Time start turning on the light sensors, the humidity sensors, and just see what sorts of patterns we can pull out of all these different types of data intermingling. Very cool. And uh, if anyone wants to get more information, where would they go? Um, just go to Quiet Time. It's Q-U-I-E-T-Y-M-E dot com. And for Barrage, it's databarrage.com, D-A-T-A-B-A-R-R-A-G-E. That's good. This is a, a very worthy problem to solve. Yeah. I've done kind of the overnight stay in a hospital, and it is a nightmare. 
My my theory, uh, because I've heard that story quite a bit, was that hospitals just don't want to keep you. That that's their way of encouraging you to go home as soon as possible. Is they're not actually going to let you sleep any more than two hours at a point. Do you think they have meetings and they're like, <laughs> I think they do. you know, uh, you know, Charles in room one twenty one, we haven't woken him up for a good two hours. Yep. He's probably just in the deepest part of his sleep cycle. Why don't we send in Betty? To annoy the hell out of him. Hey, we want to we want to make sure he heals and goes home, we right? make, or just goes get home. him home. Just yeah. just get out of here because we need another <laughs> sick person. We in need here. that bed. Yep, that's right. Um, so it was it was interesting to um, to talk to them a bit on what these problems are. Good. Uh, yeah, there was the, there was a, another interesting little um, side note. Uh, if you were following our Twitter. When I was at SolidCon, I tweeted a picture of a bracelet that uh, I, I really see as the next generation of uh, dating. Is uh, it's It was 3D printed, so that was kind of the point of being there. But basically, on an iPad, you answered a few questions about your interests, and then you wore this bracelet. And anytime you came within three feet of anyone else that had the bracelet, if you had similar interests and they thought you'd get along, uh, it, they would blow, both glow green. And if... <laughs> If it didn't think you had anything in common, it would glow red. So uh, it's pretty interesting when you're in uh, some sort of a, a business conference like Solid and you're walking around and you're talking to somebody and you're like, oh, we're kind of uh, getting along. We're talking about interesting things. And then, yeah. we, you know, we both glow red and it's like, oh, well, I guess we don't have anything interesting to talk about. Um, I got to go. <laughs> I have a session. So that was uh, that was fun. Um, so even though that you're getting along fine, your bracelet says nope. no, no. Uh, yeah, I, I bracelet actually, says no. <laughs> I got green for quite a few people, but there were there there was this uh, highly technical nuclear physicist <laughs> with double PhDs, and they both uh, glowed red. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I could see that. <laughs> That's probably you want to talk about other things that I'm I'm not interested in. Um, but basically, I could totally see this being the next next Tinder. Like, forget Tinder, forget this. You know, checking your phone. Yeah. You go to the speed dating, but instead mm-hmm. it's bracelet dating, and everyone's got a bracelet, and you just walk around the room, and if it glows green, then you start chatting each other up, and if it's red, no, no, move nope. on. Nope. Think how nope. much money nope. single guys would save uh, from not having to buy drinks for girls whose bracelets glow, glow red, <laughs> right? And you're sure they weren't just random? Um. I'm not exactly positive how advanced the algorithm uh-huh. was. That's the problem. To be fair, um, I, I mean, You're they tried your social life to an algorithm. Yeah, they they were well. That's what all the dating sites do, right? eHarmony and Match. Tinder, you're just all... kind of seeding them to pictures. Yes, and if that's... they're posing with a tiger, of course. Yes, swipe right. Right. Um, but you know, if you're going to match or eHarmony, it's all algorithms anyway. True. Um, I think it was a bit uh, my first impression, and, and maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. Um, was that, oh, they're like, there's an algorithm. It's not just that you guys both clicked on the same thing. I'm like, nah, you only asked one question. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, the only question was of this list of IoT things, what are you most interested in? Oh, I Robotics, see. Robotics, industrial, uh, analytics, UI. So I clicked a bunch of things I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and my guess is that probably it's a one Oh, well, that's nice. At least it was context sensitive. Yes. In the yes. sense that if you were both interested in robotics. Right. That sort of thing. That's my guess. They, they were trying to say it was a more advanced algorithm, but I, uh-huh. I don't see it. Um, <laughs> but I could definitely see that if you did have a more advanced algorithm, yeah. that it, no, it I, would be interesting. Arranged marriages. Yes. Based on done. bracelets. 
And and that's that's our future society. Uh, anyway, <laughs> we're so- both green. Let's get married. <laughs> Until one day it turns red and then everything like, goes sour. <laughs> nice knowing you. Uh, so the the last guy I talked to, I had to talk to because um, I used to work in the health industry and I still have quite a few ca- connections to health tech and uh, health innovation. And one of the biggest challenges, um, as you know, for for tech specifically in the dieting and the, and the food area is figuring out caloric value, one that is on the plate and two that you've actually consumed. And they've basically smart plate uh, was there and smart plate. They built a plate that has a scale in it, um, but then also has embedded cameras and takes pictures of your food. Cause their example was they had two apples there, a smaller apple and a larger apple. And they're mm-hmm. like, these obviously do not have the same caloric value, but everything you ever read says an apple is I don't know, right. 400 calories or whatever it is. But obviously that's not true. Um, and so both the app on your phone, you can take pictures of the food and the plate itself takes pictures of the food from the camera on the side, which I thought was a little interesting, but they they claim they have amazing accuracy. Um, their database is really good. They're starting to get into the ethnic foods. Uh, so I, I had to talk to them because that was one of the biggest challenges I've seen in health is figuring out caloric value. Uh, it's a pain. On the intake. So my name is Anthony Ortiz, and I'm the creator of Smart Plate, the world's first intelligent plate that instantly analyzes everything you eat. We uh, deploy uh, image recognition along with, uh, with uh, load sensors to capture the weight and identify the food, send it to the cloud for analysis, and give you all the nutritional information of your meal within seconds. Wow. So that, that sounds like a really tall order. I feel like a lot of people have been trying to do the, like, the Fitbits and all that is fine with activity. But the second you get to food, yeah. it's a whole other challenge. So how, how have you solved that with this? Or? Yeah. So we often call ourselves the Fitbit for food. Okay. Um, and the way that we solve that problem is, um, you know, we, we don't believe, we believe in precision, right? So uh, the problem that we're solving is that not all apples are created equal, uh, not all calories are created equal. So we need to move away from calorie counting and how do you move towards counting your macronutrients and your micros, right? That's what really, ma- that's what really, that's what's most important uh, in order to lose weight, maintain or improve performance uh, in, in the healthiest uh, fashion, right? So, um, so we, the way that we do it, as I explained earlier, is we have, it, it's a smart plate. It's a, it's a, a regular plate that is in uh, 10 inches in diameter. It comes with three digital cameras uh, embedded at the center of the plate. The minute it senses food on its surface, the cameras snap a picture, uh, and that picture is sent to the cloud. We identify what it is along with the weight, and then we give you all the nutrition information in a snap. Wow. So how long did it take to actually develop that massive kind of database you need? Because I'm guessing, I mean, you need every type of bread, every type of pasta, and every type of salad. and. Yes. So we're still early on, but we've been working on this problem since late 2011. So currently our database has over 400,000 foods, uh, 300,000 SKUs, uh, regular SKUs like this, CPG products. Uh, We also have uh, over 8,000 meals through the USDA's database. Um, And then over 100,000 restaurant meals too. So uh, if you don't have the plate with you and you're dining out, you can use the app. It's going to be reasonably accurate. So we recommend that if you're eating out less than five times a week, you really want to use the plate for the most part. It also comes with a, uh, with a microwavable uh, portable lid, so you can use it as your new Tupperware, take it to work with you, uh, you know, 
it's not just for dinner. It's it can be used for you know all your snacks, your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow! So um, you can microwave the plate? Uh, you can't microwave the plate. It yeah. comes with a microwavable portable lid. Got it. So you put the lid on, you reverse it, got it, and stick the lid in there with all your food, and then you know that's how that's how we solve that problem. Now there will be a version that will be uh, ultimately microwave and dishwasher safe. Uh, eventually. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Eventually. No, that, yeah. that would be impressive if yeah. the technology can survive all that. Yeah. Um, so, so now, with the plate and the algorithms in it, h- yeah. how does the average person um, use it when they're trying to lose weight or trying to eat healthier or whatever they're missing? Yeah, so what they do is they, uh, so let's say that someone is trying to lose one or two pounds per week, you'll go on our app, uh, you'll set uh, your goals, uh, if that's one to two pounds a week, and then, you know, whatever that uh, the, that caloric intake is, so let's say you're set for 1,600 calories a day, now we manage that, uh, that caloric intake on a daily basis, so we'll tell you when you've gone over on any of your macronutrients at that time or when you've gone over or you're about to go over on any of those calories. So it comes with an LED, LCD screen right here on the plate. So let's say, for example, you've got about 45 grams of carbs left and you've served yourself 60 grams of carbs. We may say, you know, remove two tablespoons from tray C. So you hit your goals uh, instantly. Wow, that's fantastic. Now, the implications, the healthcare implications are huge, right? So when a person has a diabetic seizure, they walk out of the hospital with this book right here. And uh, it's about, oh. I don't know, uh, <laughs> would you say, yeah, it's almost 300 pages. Uh, and My they, guess is nobody goes you think, through that. <laughs> you think counting calories is hard? Counting carbohydrates is even harder, yeah. right? And you have to eye it. And so, like, I need to guess that that has, you know, 30, 25, I don't know how many carbs are in that, right? So... Um, so we take the guessing game not only out of cal- counting calories, but counting your macronutrients, your carbs, your proteins, your fats. Um, and we think this is super important because current applications don't t- cannot tell you the difference between this apple and that apple. Yeah. You just punch in an apple and it's like, okay, 100 calories. Well, no. This, ca- this apple has 55 calories. Right. So that could mean the difference uh, for a diabetic over the course of a day between having to give him or herself an extra shot of insulin that could also mean the difference right there uh, between losing that one or two pounds that right. you want to hit. So precision is everything. So with all the medical conditions and uh, drugs that people are on, uh, does your database handle all that yet, or is that more in the future? So that's kind of more in the future as we move towards uh, a true healthcare solution. So we are, you know, we have our eyes set on de- delivering clinical solutions. Uh, we want to deliver an evidence-based solution with our product. So, you know, can we prove that we can reduce hemoglobin A1C below 7%? things of that sort, and then eventually tie it on. So we're partnered with Penn Medicine, Independence Blue Cross. They're investors in our company. Nice. So the payer-provider model is very much in our strategic horizon. So uh, we think that's super important. Can we connect to a, uh, a provider's EHR, right? And now we have all of that information as well. So we'll know when someone's about to eat grapefruit, for example, and that could cause a food-drug interaction that's not, uh, right. not, not the best, right? That's true. Sure. Um, so now with the plate, um, it's connected via Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. Correct. So how do you see that ever connecting to the kitchen as a whole as we get more towards the smart home? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to ultimately have discussions with uh, different appliances and uh, appliance manufacturers to sort of connect to your blender and all sorts of other kitchen appliances. We think that's there's huge implications of that, right? And can the plate give you recipes? We we know what you're consuming. So it also serves as a recommendation engine, uh, fulfillment 
uh, engine as well, and then we know what's happening once we tie it in. So right now it's connected to Fitbit. Uh, we're also in talks with other uh, wearable uh, companies, so like they're excited about us connecting with them as yeah. well. We're actually meeting with uh, with Gluco in a, in a couple of hours, uh, the diabetes company here in uh, Palo Alto. So we're excited to you know to be able to work with all of these companies and be that you know f- that missing part. Yeah. Um, you know that's cur- currently absent in the market. So definitely, H- yeah. how consistent is it? Is it is it pretty accurate? Yeah. So I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm sure if you were able to uh, to see. In, yeah, in, I got uh, a little demo. Okay. Oh, nice. did you did you actually uh, see the image working? The, uh-huh. Okay. Great. So. Uh, you know, if it identified vegetable fried rice, garden salad. I mean, yeah. our algorithms are now yielding 99.7% accuracy That's in the fantastic. foods that it identifies, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Well, and uh, how much is it and how can people get more information? Yeah, sure. So we're, we just launched a successful Kickstarter campaign and so we finished that, but they can still purchase it on our website at getsmartplate.com. It's going to retail for $149, but they can purchase it on our website uh, for $119. Okay. Uh, and it's gonna, we're going to deliver it in summer of 2016. So if they pre-order now, they'll get a really good discount. So in theory, you could develop a robot that could identify food by looking at it the same way a human does. Cause I, I, you know, you do the same thing. You look at your plate and you're like, Oh, I, I recognize chicken and mashed potatoes and broccoli. Oh, absolutely. No machine learning can absolutely and, solve that problem. And then the only benefit would be is I can't assess based on the size and the dimensions uh, and the weight caloric value. But if I had that database, I could. So mm-hmm. in theory, you could have a robot that could see something measure the weight and the dimensions and extrapolate potential caloric value, right? Well, I agree. And and you should be able to take the camera on your phone and literally take some video of you waving the phone around your plate so you could get an idea of the volume. In other words, yeah. you could take a picture, but if you put, you know, if you took some video of you waving the, the um, phone over your plate, yeah. you'd actually get a side view and you'd actually get an idea of the volume as well. And so I don't quite understand what this plate adds to the picture. So they have the app that you can take a picture of the food. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Their problem there is they're not also getting the weight. But the smart plate has a scale in it. So it also gets the weight. And it has the three three sections of the plate. And each section has its own camera. Um, so they get... Where the is the camera? Are, it's in the middle of the plate, which is weird to me. Uh, because it, essentially I'm thinking it's as if you have put an ant in the middle of your plate and it was looking up at the chicken. So it must be like a spherical camera taking like a half, half sphere yes. image uh, in three different directions. So in theory, you should see your, the sides of the food. So that's probably it, how they're getting an idea of the volume of the food versus you, just the, the two dimensional snap you would get from taking a photo above the plate. Right. But uh, I mean, what's to stop you from hiding your peas behind the chicken? I don't know. It's like, why are you hiding I your peas? You wouldn't Andrea? Hide your peas. Why would you hide your peas? <laughs> because I, I, I just, I, I'd, I don't know. You shouldn't give it, peas a chance. <laughs> if you're, if you're buying the plate, I get that you wouldn't want to try and trick it. So you're probably trying to help the plate. No, you, you bring form. it with you everywhere. You take yeah. it to restaurants and well, you can say, could you please serve me on my special plate? Yeah, that's that's where they started saying you use the phone and take pictures. But um, it, it's just, I don't, I, I want to, I could see how it could logically work. And if they're putting in the effort to build the massive database, they could have a leg up on anybody else. Absolutely. I, I applaud the idea. I think it's nice to make that, 
uh, easier for people. I don't know why that wouldn't be an app on your phone. Well, they do have an app on the phone. But I'm not sure why you would build the device. Because they want the weight, is my guess. And I understand. but it, it, And you systematize. I'm sure if you are uh, at the point where you're counting calories, you, you would use the plate, I guess, for every meal. Um, it's not dishwasher safe yet. <laughs> oh, my there. God. Like, I had to ask. <laughs> I had to ask. Um, okay, so someone got really excited yeah. And somehow got a lot of money and didn't think this, I think, through. I think it's the same ambitious project that a lot of health IT companies have been trying to do. Everyone's got a different idea. Every This isn't the first time it was take a picture and it will assess the caloric value of your food. No, I think that's a good idea. Um, but I, think, it, it, I think it can work. And the guy seems confident that it, that it it works well. So Well, he has to, to be fair. But yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I really, I do applaud the idea. And I, I think that a lot of the assets they're building as part of this, probably like the database of the food, uh, will be useful. And hopefully yeah. they can use machine learning to understand not only what's on the plate, but how it was cooked, which has an effect. Definitely. How much oil did you use when you were making that fried chicken? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and they might even be able to detect things like how it was, if it was baked or fried, depending yeah. on how things look. That's true. So uh-huh. I, I, uh, I hope. I hope it works well for them. I wish them luck. I think anything that contributes to this kind of area of allowing people to to manage what goes in their body is good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the temperature of the food. I, I'd love to see it eventually go to the next level where you actually know the the vitamin value because they say based on how you cook the broccoli, you get certain vitamins more than others. And and uh, uh, f- food's definitely an interesting place. I think it's the variety and the sheer scope of size of different things just makes it a, a behemoth of a problem. Yeah, but they should be able to make it more accurate than, than a one size fits all. Yeah. You know, this hot dog is X calories. Either that or, or we could just make a tray and your chicken has to fit in this exact spot every time. And if it's bigger, you got to trim a little off because then the chicken's too big for the spot. Those are called chicken nuggets. Yes. <laughs> but that brings up an interesting point that the, I've had a lot of success with, prepackaged and, you know, relatively healthy fast food because they figure that out for you and it's relatively uniform. This does solve a, or try to solve an interesting problem where when you're making your own foods, it's really tough to figure that out. It's almost impossible. And to make it uniform every time. And to do it in a restaurant, unless it's a bigger restaurant chain that's figured out the caloric value for you. But if it's a smaller restaurant where they haven't done that. Yeah. Well, even, and even then on those menus, uh, it still says caloric values are estimated because it depends what chef you got that day. This one likes to cook with more oil. This one gave you a little bit more green beans. Right. If it's a real legit restaurant for sure. So, uh, it's a, it's an interesting challenge. Well, I I applaud them and I I do wish them the most luck. I don't think this would work for my lifestyle, but surely it would work for someone's. Okay. It's exciting. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to our overview of SolidCon 2015 on Farstuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form on our site or just email us at podcast at farstuff.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts because it helps other people find us. And to get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.